Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Modern House Podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. In this podcast, I ask my esteemed guests to pick their three favourite living spaces from anywhere in the world, and we talk about the timeless design principles that contribute to their success. Things like space, light, materials and a connection to nature. First up in this new series is John Pawson. Now in his 70s, John is the acknowledged godfather of minimalism, whose serene, soulful architecture has spawned a thousand inferior imitators. He's made his name designing perfectly pared-back religious buildings, homes for Bruce Chatwin and Karl Lagerfeld, and stores for Calvin Klein and Christopher Kane. I spent an inspiring day with John at his farmhouse in the Cotswolds, where we sat down in his decidedly uncluttered sitting room for a fireside chat. We started by talking about his early years working in the family textile business, hanging out with Liza Minnelli, and being inspired by a legendary Japanese designer. Hope you enjoy it. So John, welcome. Let's just set the scene a moment. So we're talking in your sitting room of Home Farm, your house in Oxfordshire. I would love to actually start by just taking you right back to your roots. And I'd love to hear just a little bit about your childhood experiences of home. Where did you grow up? How did you end up in design and architecture? I'm intrigued by that. How did a boy in Halifax end up here? (laughs) Well, I was born just outside Halifax in a a village and at home, as was more common in those days. And I have four sisters and my mother was a very instinctive mother. She was definitely a homemaker and a you know, a natural cook and a very, very empathetic uh, person. But Halifax, I mean, my father thought Halifax was the centre of the, the world. And although he sent me to school in the South, you know, my goal was always to get to London eventually. Okay. But it was a long, it was a circuitous route. I mean, I didn't arrive there until I was 30. But it, it, it's interesting, Halifax, because it, it escaped the modernization sort of in the 60s or whatever it was. And and uh, a lot of the buildings were retained, that industrial Yorkstone buildings, you know, and without very much decoration. And, you know, like Yorkshire people, very sort of straightforward. And of course, it's in a bowl and the landscape is treeless. And, you know, even the roofs are made of Yorkstone. So it's sort of, it sticks with you, I suppose, once a Yorkshireman. They can't take the, what is it? The man out of Yorkshire, or the Yorkshire out of the man. Yeah. Do you think there's Yorkshire in your architecture then? If you kind of equate clarity or straightforwardness or unpretentious, or those are always things which very early on were thought of as being pejorative things. Mm. I'm sure that people think, you know, when you get criticism, that perhaps minimalism or trying to make things straightforward and clear is in, in in its sense an affectation. Yeah. I mean, people ask where things come from, but I, I mean, I never thought about it, you know, until I had to look back. But I mean, it must be the upbringing there. I mean, I was 24 when I left Halifax. I worked for my father there and up, up outside Newcastle in Washington, County Durham. And I mean, there's a lot about the North, which is great and is very different. Yeah. Was architecture or design a thing in your childhood? Well, Dad was always building things. 
you know, we expanded the business. And so there was a factory to build and offices. And then with our own house, there's always somebody doing something at home. And he did build the most beautiful and elaborate in terms of the quality orange wreath that I've ever seen. I mean, the most beautiful thing. I mean, I remember him poring over the plans with Jeffrey Cash, who who was an architect from Halifax, who he worked with on all his projects. And together they made this exquisite orange wreath. I mean, growing oranges in Halifax is a... (laughs) No mean feat. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) But it was just the fun of building it. Yeah. Okay, so he was, a, he was a sort of Halifax's version of Joseph Paxton by some sort. Slightly pushing it, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of nice historical buildings in Halifax. Yeah. I mean, the Peace Hall is extraordinary, 18th century marketplace. The 18th century chapel, which is a cube by car of York. When you get to the top of the hill, and the whole of Halifax would be laid out in front of you in this bowl contained and mostly in York Stone. Okay. And of course, very early on when I did it, it was, you know, 150 smoking chimneys and then it stopped and now there are no chimneys. Yeah. And of course, the black buildings are now stone-coloured. What was your journey then to setting up your own architecture practice? Oh, well, (laughs) there there were many steps on the way. Yeah. Interesting, because Dad would always like to be an architect. But he said to me, oh, you don't do architecture, you you employ them. Why do something somebody else can do? The definition of work is having to do something that somebody else can't do, in some terms. But of course, for me, it's never been, you know, a job or even a vacation. If It's just been a pleasure. Mm. It's just pure pleasure doing it. And that's what it was for Dad. But he had the responsibility of, you know, his father ran the company. And before that, you know, if it belonged to the grandfather and the great-grandfather and so on. So there was always somebody doing something in textiles. So he felt he couldn't just ditch it and become an architect. Mm -hmm. You know, I did that hippie thing and went to Afghanistan and then eventually ended up in New Zealand. and, And while I was in Australia, I met Liza Minnelli. She was 21, I was 17. I met her because I was going out with her sister-in-law, her her husband at the time, an Australian, Peter Allen. His sister um, was my girlfriend. Okay. So we hung out a bit. And so on the way back home, I'd stopped off in New York and saw them. The main point being my father had said, you know, it's time to come back. If you don't come back now, there's no job in the company for you. Okay. I was having fun with... Liza Minnelli. And so I thought I was living at large. Yeah. So as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, I thought, you know, I mean, I got on very, very well with my father. There's no not going back. Although, I mean, I gave him six years. Or not gave him, I gave myself six years in the company. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. But it was a, it was a fantastic learning curve because you, you learn what you want, I suppose, by, you know, not having it. Yeah. And of course, Dad was a expert in textiles fabrics and so I, I I learned about materials from him and form and pattern and and that stimulation that comes from boredom it was a funny time and the, while I was in 
Washington County, Durham, near Newcastle. I met some people at the art school there. It's where Richard Hamilton was and Brian Ferry. And they said, did you see it in Domus magazine? It's the magazine you like. So they showed me a copy and I thought, oh my God, you know, where have I been? Really? And in it, and I opened it and there was a, an article about Kuramata, Shira Kuramata. And I said, oh my God, I'd always been looking for somebody who visualised what I'd been thinking. Okay. And I'd never seen anybody else's work apart from his that I thought this is an embodiment of what I was thinking and I couldn't visualise it myself. I mean, obviously, Mies van der Rohe was that person, but he was already dead. And so this was a sort of contemporary version for me. Anyway, things didn't work out with Dad and the company. And at the same time, I was going to get married to Sandra, who I'd been going out with for years. And we both agreed it wasn't going to work, or rather she said it wasn't going to work. (laughs) So I was in a fairly tricky way. I had this chance to fly to Japan at a short notice. And I only had one friend, and he he was in Nagoya. So I went up there, and we had a lot of fun. And so it slightly made me forget, you know, my personal circumstances. Mm. Then I told him that I'd, I'd really come to Japan to go into a Buddhist monastery, you know, until I reached enlightenment. He's very Japanese and very polite. And so he said, well... That's what you want to do. As it happens, my father is a, a priest. And he had a, a small temple in Nagoya. And uh, he said, you know, I can drive up and introduce you to the Eiheiji temple um, in north of Japan. So we went. And of course, he hung around and I lasted four hours in the you know, scrubbing floors. I mean, <laughs> I was like, I mean, I was 24, but I might as well have been... 15. I mean, I was a complete mm. schoolboy. And then I got a job teaching in, in Nagoya. And then I finally got to, to Tokyo after three years. But I'd already looked up Kuramata in, when I arrived in Tokyo on the way. He was very bemused. He wasn't quite sure why a 24-year-old Englishman with no qualifications he was knocking at his door, but he, he gave me the benefit of the doubt. And he took you in? He didn't take me in if he, you know, I, I had various visits to his office just hanging around. And okay. being, being, he invited me to all his openings and, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, he was incredibly generous. He must have wondered what on earth I was doing, really. <laughs> I mean, it sometimes happens in the reverse. Yeah. And I just sort of put up with it because I know what I was like. But I do think, crikey, was I like that? And I know I was. Now, I think people do have a certain expectation when they come to the office. Yeah. And they think it's going to be very... Well, it is very serious. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, with the extreme seriousness comes a lot of humour and practical jokes. And I was going to ask you about that because, yeah, your architecture is serious and contemplative and meditative. And you actually, as an individual, are not necessarily... That are people quite surprised when they meet you? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they say that to you. Uh, they must do. The other weird thing is that the people that knew me before. Yeah. The people that I haven't seen since school, or since Japan, or since Newcastle, or and if they didn't see it coming. Yeah. Does it matter? I don't know. 
Mm. I think it's kind of fascinating. I'm interested in how you ended up going down this particular aesthetic path. And what is it within you? What is the chip in you that makes you need to have this level of, you know, monasticism almost? I'm not sure if I need to, but there is a certain drive there. Of course, people ask now, and I'm made to look back and reflect about where it comes from or what it is. And I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting that my children have very strong interests and are, are, I suppose, driven as well. I don't know. And my father was. I mean, normally they say, you know, three generations, you'd lose it. But, you know, my Ben and Caius and Phoebe are very interested in what's going on and are very focused and, you know, in a good, in a nice way. You don't have to exclude other things to make a success of, of what you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's, to me, it's not at any cost. I mean, I'd like to say that, you know, family definitely come first. I mean, I've been very lucky because Catherine's allowed me to to go out in the morning and concentrate on the work and come back, you know. It, it struck me that you've, you seemed from the outside to have kept your practice to sort of 20-odd people for as yeah. long as I've sort yeah. of been aware. Mm. So that must have been, been a deliberate thing. So do you, do you just put a cap on the number of projects you take on? No, if they, <laughs> they put a cap on me. I mean, <laughs> people always say, oh, how do you choose <laughs> which jobs to do? I'm like... There's no choice. I take them all. Right. But, of course, some jobs go by the wayside or clients go by the wayside. I mean, you don't, you don't get everyone that, that you come into contact with. I think the big difference probably is that I only do competitions where I'm invited and the odds are stacked in my favour. Yeah, you've got a tip-off. No, well... <laughs> Know where I think they might be. I mean, we don't win all of those either. Yeah. To be have a one in ten chance seems to me yeah. crazy. But most of my peers that build bigger things and have bigger offices mostly do competitions and mostly win, you know, one out of four or five. Mm. And they have a whole system of, of how to do them and how to approach them. And I don't really have that expertise. Yeah. I guess the Design Museum or Cathay Pacific is the biggest thing that we've really done. Yeah. It's never been important to me, you know, the size. I mean, I have enough to say in tiny things. You know, that's why I don't mind designing a teacup or mm. fork. Or, you know. mm. Let's move on. As you know, we've asked you to pick your three yeah. favourite living spaces, although there's a good range, there's a good mix here. You mentioned Mies van der Rohe earlier, so your first choice is the Farnsworth House, which was built between 1949 and 1951. Obviously a, a legend of the modernist pantheon, but why this one in particular, do you think? Oh my God, I mean, it's, it's the Holy Grail, it's the most sublime space or object I've visited. I mean, it's right up there, you know, with the pyramids or the Torone or... You know, I visited it twice. I've spent, you know, extended time there. Um, luckily, when Peter Palumbo bought it from Isa Farnsworth, you know, I've gone there by rowing boat as well as walked. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to put it, but every move, it's small. You know, it's a single-storey pavilion or whatever. 
but everything about it to the last screw of the is thought out and it's one of the first it's the very best you can't take it any further and it's the, the very definition of minimum which is you can't add or subtract from it it's reached a certain perfection and so from there on for me everything else is slightly downhill you know if people talk about other modernist houses and the case study houses and philip johnson's but if you've been to farnsworth they're all chasing something which they can't achieve i mean they're all interesting beautiful and pleasant to be in mm. but they're not farnsworth you know and that's so weird when you when you read the book about Nice's relationship with Edith Farnsworth, you know, if they were introduced as boy wants to meet girl, you know, yeah. at dinner in Chicago. Yeah. Meese struck up this relationship with her and she said she was looking for an architect for a modest house <laughs> on a bit of land she'd bought for you know to have a weekend house away from Chicago. Little did she know she was getting the finest architect of the millennia, you know, for yeah. the millennium to do it. And it's just so Weird to me that somebody so intelligent as her, but also so strong, of course, and willful, that she didn't realise, you know, what she, what she had. I mean, she sort of did, but that made it probably made it worse. Well, she, I mean, she famously just hated it, didn't she? Well, she, they fell out, and then she she really took against the building, didn't she? Well, she went out with him, or she had a relationship with him. You know, he wasn't married and he was quite Catholic in his taste or whatever. He had one or two girlfriends and he was Mies, you know. And he was 60 and I don't know, but she could have got somebody else to do her house that she wanted somewhere else. But, I mean, it doesn't really matter because he's done it and nothing much got in the way of him doing it. Yeah. You see it as the kind of ultimate embodiment of that idea of minimum. Does it work as a living space? Because oh, there's a great quote I've got written down here by Edith Farnsworth where she said, she said, I feel like a prowling animal always on the alert. The conception of a glass cage suspended in air is ridiculous. And she had all sorts of tourists turning up with their cameras, didn't she, and photographing her all the time in her pyjamas. And, um, and of course, it got very hot in the summer and pretty chilly in the winter. And is there such a thing as sort of too much transparency in a way? Um, it's something like that. I think you're given the most sublime piece of work. I think that you can adapt to that. Obviously, it's glass all the way around, but it, it's it's a unique experience. It was only designed for her to stay in. Mm. It wasn't designed for mates. It's basically a single room, isn't it, really? Pretty much. Yeah. You could be there with a partner or mm. somebody intimate. And I guess you could be there with a child or something if you really wanted. But but it's there to be enjoyed and to have daytime guests. And you've got this extraordinary feeling of living in the woods and by the water. And I mean, those people showing up could easily be stopped. Yeah. You have a perimeter. You don't have to shoot them, but you don't. <laughs> the build-up of heat in the summer can be mitigated, you know... All those things are easy to fix. Yeah. And and the mosquitoes could have been if she, if she you know, fitted the right screens and everything. Yeah. It's it's a house that's basically in service to nature, isn't it? it, it, it Mies obviously thought that... I'd love your take on this, actually. 
the idea that you can create a building with certain apertures and, and your experience of nature is enhanced by being inside something and looking out at it. Is that... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's an absolute treat on both levels. When you arrive, and I mean, you can imagine the excitement for me of having waited, I don't know, all my life to see this. Yeah. And then suddenly getting this glimpse mm. of it sitting in the woods and, and the, with the, the Fox River and so on. You know, I just like, transported that from the outside. And then when you're inside, of course, it's just magical because you're elevated. But what you don't understand from the pictures, of course, is the scale. Because it's much bigger than you think. Okay. Everything, it's like the Barcelona chef. You're, you know, everything is oversized. You know, it's quite tall inside. You know, but it's much wider. And then the steps. I mean, it's like walking up to the Parthenon. Right. Or whatever. I mean, it's like mad. You'd be happy if you just walked up those steps and were on the, the platform or the landing before you go up further. I mean, that would be enough almost. Yeah. You know, these travertine steps in the middle of the, the green. The, the steps and the way that's elevated, it's, it's almost kind of offered up, isn't it? It makes it more yeah. ceremonious somehow. Yeah. You know, and then it was put up above the 100-year watermark. But of course, with global warming or whatever, you know, that wasn't enough. Yeah, and it floods, doesn't it, every now and again? Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, is tricky. Yeah. It seems to me that if you asked someone to imagine or draw a picture of a modern house in the landscape they would probably still draw the kind of flat roof single story Farnsworth house kind of a structure it's 75 years on or whatever it is why has that endured so much that very simple thing um well it's interesting that whenever it happened they got to a point where they could have a flat roofed shelter which worked so in in visual terms obviously it's much simpler visually to have a flat roof and flat roof equals modern because you know you needed the technology to be able to do a flat roof i suppose mm. and, and mises house takes it right down you know it's, it's so abstracted you know four columns a roof and a floor two plates and then the sandwich or whatever it is, is all glass. Consistent, the same panes all the way around. And the four white columns. I mean, you you cannot reduce it any further. Mm. And you can't detail it any better than these did. Mm. And any home or any building, it's a commitment. You know, you've either got to learn the choreography when you first move in or you, you've got to adapt. And that that was the absolute ultimate in adapting because it means, you know, he wasn't designing a home for her. He was designing one of the most sublime structures ever done. Yes, yeah, so he was saying he kind of transcended the idea of it being a home in a way because it was just a sort of yeah. manifesto of sorts. Would you want to live in it? Oh, heartbeat. <laughs> heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. God. Um, you know, I wouldn't be able to have all the family to stay. Yeah. You build them something in the garden. Or maybe a bit further away. <laughs> You'd have them all rowing up to see you, that's the problem. Okay, so let's move on. Your second choice is very different, which is 
brilliant and always makes for an interesting result. So it's, um, I know this is particularly important to you, this building. Um, it's called La Torone Abbey in the south of France, which was built in the 12th century. I went there myself actually many, many years ago, and I remember reading that it was one of your favourite buildings. So I did think of you when I was there. It is an incredible place because the whole thing is made of, pretty much the whole thing is made of one type of stone, isn't it? So yeah. it's a kind of very single treatment. And it is just staggeringly simple, but just works as a building. Why is it so important to you? How do you describe it? Uh, Bruce Chatwin was Caius's godfather. And he talked about the Torinay, and I wasn't quite sure what he was saying because he just said La Torinay, you know. <laughs> and he didn't say Abbe or it's in the south of France or by the way. And so I, I said I had to find a way of saying what is yeah. La Torinay, which is a bit of a stupid question to him because he was like, why don't you know if you're an architect, why don't you know about La Torinay? So, of course, <laughs> I very quickly went down there. It's sort of interesting because it's obviously an early example of Cistercian monastic architecture and St. Bernard and, you know, but it's already slightly breaking the rules because it's the apse and the church is curved. You know, only God could do curves. That was the monk's thing. Right. And it's got a bell tower now, which was probably added on later. But the form, even though it adapts to the terrain because it's, they were always built on the rivers and in the hills to have running water to get rid of the sewage and, the, and all the rest of it. So the plan is, you know, there's slight idiosyncrasies, but it, it's pure Cistercian layout. And of course, it wouldn't all have been just stone. I mean, the, the roof is pantiles. And of course, they're very lucky with the light. You know, you get that uh, Mediterranean sun and, mm. and golden a lot of the time and after the dissolution, after the revolution, the monasteries belonged to the state, the Monument Historique. And I was really very, very fortunate. just coincided with the two women that were in charge of our area, asked if I would do an exhibition there, which gave me a chance to really get to know. They allowed me full access, because they always close for lunch, which is always a bit irritating. <laughs> so they let me be there during lunch hour, which okay. meant no people. Okay. And then the, I could also stay the night and sleep on the roof. And oh, wow. Certainly access to all areas was appreciated. And just to spend time and listen, because the acoustics are Cistercian. Yeah, what does that mean, the acoustics of Cistercian? The acoustics of the church are good for chanting. Yes. And singing. Yeah, there's a long echo, isn't there? To be absolutely honest, you know, I rely on experts. I mean, I know what I want and I can say what I want, but I don't know how to achieve it. So these people do. And one of the things is for the monastery that we did, I said, well, I want it to sound like the Torone. For your monastery yeah. in the Czech Republic? Yeah, yeah. Where, or any of the churches that we've done. Yeah. The acoustics are obviously very important and we can predict things much better now than they could. And we can deal with it if if they don't quite work. Can I ask you about how that plays into a house like here? Do do you think about the acoustics as you're designing a house? Well, I'd like to say yes. I take fanatical interest, but I trust they're going to be all right. If they're not, then I'm not sure what I do. Obviously, things like curtains and rugs absorb 
and stop you getting that reverberation. Mm. So they're more comfortable. Do you usually use timber on the floor? They're hard floors, yeah. They're either timber or, or stone or concrete. And here, it's a bit different because the outside noises are birds and wind. Yeah, which we can hear going in yeah. the background now, yeah. And the west side of the house, where mostly the new openings are triple glazed, modern units, the windows. And on the east side, <laughs> they're wafer-thin Georgian glass. It's sort of interesting that the heat and the ventilation are all balanced. So it's, it's still very, very comfortable. But it's slightly odd getting the, the birds coming from the east, but not from the west. Yeah, it's like having a set of headphones on and you're just hearing that... One side of them. Yeah, being. giving a violin in one side, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like that. Yeah. As you say, you've designed religious buildings yourself. Obviously, a religious building is about a certain atmosphere, a meditative atmosphere. How do you go about generating that as an architect, whether it's a religious building or a house? What, what do you do? There is a difference between sacred architecture and spiritual architecture and the, the rest. And However, the same architect gets to do both. So monks look for, you know, pragmatic, practical person to, to get them what they want. They mm. don't ask for somebody who's necessarily religious or a saint. Um, but they want somebody who's, who might understand what they're looking for. And in a church, obviously, there are a lot of things which you take into consideration. And if you get the proportions right and the scale and not so much the materials, but the form, and you provide a place which encourages that concentration on God and the business in hand, you then trust that it will imbue a certain spiritual atmosphere which helps these guys go about their you know ceremony their praying or their religious their, or their communication with god but it's it's done in purely practical terms you know just the same as providing a living room but a living room doesn't have to have that extra quality of sacredness yeah and it's interesting that the monks saw the Calvin Klein store and of course the joke is that I thought they'd been there but they'd just seen a photograph right they saw the two tables which they could envisage as being altars and they could see the the proportions as being church like and the fact that it was connected with Calvin Klein and underpants and and sex (laughs) had not a jot of Worry to them because they, they they were after a space, yeah, and that was the, their priority. Yeah, it doesn't matter where it was or what it was. That wasn't going to sidetrack them. I didn't realise that. I didn't. I, that's great. I love that story. So with La Torre, you you talked about the Provencal light, which artists have obviously famously been drawn to over the years. But is it also about darkness in that building as well? Well, the, the darkness comes because you're so blinded by the light. Yeah. I mean, you go in and until you adjust, it, it, it's black. Yeah. But it, you soon balance out. Um, it is all stone, floor and walls, the same stone. But whether, whether some walls were plastered or not, I don't know. 
So speaking about light, do you have any particular rules yourself about artificial light? Because it's famously difficult to get that right. I mean, for people listening, what would you offer as some words of wisdom on artificial lighting and how to get it wrong or how to get it right? <laughs> well, I think we're, we're luckier and luckier with what's available nowadays. I mean, I don't like to see light fittings. I don't mind getting out a box of candles from a drawer, but I don't like seeing light fittings during the day, if possible. But of course, to deliver nice light, you, you need fittings. But I tend to put in more than you need, even though you don't see it, and have control over that. So that when the job's finished, I can then play with the lighting until I get it right. Right. And you might still need the odd lamp brought in or something like that, but it's very much a, it's a work in progress and it's incredibly important. And I think most people underestimate, you know, they think they can do the architecture and then not bother about the lighting, but it's, you know, especially in England where you, half the time you're in darkness, it's very important, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about atmosphere and it's also about practicality. I mean, you need to be able to read without straining and you know but we've got much more at our fingertips now yeah but generally you recess it don't you i just don't like to see lots of fittings and i hate you know having showers on the ceiling (laughs) i mean carl lagerfeld kept talking about showers i don't want showers i was like what and of course you know when he saw you know ceiling full of down lights he thought of you know each one was a shower he literally thought yeah. no, but he meant oh, I don't want showers of light. I don't want to, what looks like shower heads. Yes, exactly. Possibly, I don't know. But the trouble with with Carl is that it's usually best not to ask him to repeat something or question him. Right, which is a but pity because yeah, he he was so incredibly humorous. Yeah, very good. So your third and final choice is the Life House in Wales which is a holiday house that you designed yourself for living architecture. First of all, not everyone will have come across living architecture, so what, how would you describe it? What is it? Alan de Botoff, the writer, wanted people to be able to experience a very different sort of living by staying in a house and seeing an alternative to what they might be used to. I don't mean in a patronising way for any of us. So he came up with the idea of some architect-designed houses which other people could stay in, that they weren't just for one person. And because I knew his father, and if he'd used a plan of one of my places in, in the, one of his first books, just as an architecture plan, just as a part of a story, he approached me. But it was a, a few years later that I actually got to do one. Okay. I mean, I think he wanted the first one to be abroad that I did, but in the end it became too difficult to control houses abroad, and it's bad enough in England. Yeah. This idea of, of me doing one didn't go away, and, and eventually he said, oh, I've, I've got one for you. It's in Wales. And uh, there was an existing single-storey traditional bungalow-type thing there, on a great side, uh, right in the middle of Wales, literally, physically in the middle so I thought this is very nice. My first idea was to do something very similar to what was there, but a new building, so a long house. 
very traditional long house, pitched roof, windows, fairly similar situation to where it was if we're taking account of the usual you know, the view and the water and the this and that. And Alain was like, this isn't what I want. Did he? I, I thought, hold on, I'm the designer. Yeah. This is what I think. Luckily, I didn't quite say that. I was slightly like uncharacteristically bristly. And of course, Alain's usually quite solicitous, so if you need, but he's obviously incredibly bright and very focused and everything. Anyway, if, if it was within me, he said, would I mind considering an, an alternative? <laughs> anyway, quite a long way down the line, that's the alternative um, <laughs> design. And as you know, the idea is that if all these different places, different projects, all have something provocative or in a good way. I mean, if they make you think, they take you out of your comfort zone, you have a, an experience mm. and it opens your eyes. It's a very different way of living. And I wanted a, a contemplative house, which was along the lines of the monastery that I've done, you know, so very prescriptive in the way you used it and worked. And some of the ideas that were muted were, I thought, slightly extreme. Like he thought, you know, you should have to climb over the stream to get there. You know, you'd have to leave the car the wrong side of the water. Right. Maybe you could have a loo at the end of the garden. Well, there isn't a garden, but the end of the, the landscape. Yeah. So you'd be able to feel the elements and you'd know your bodily functions. I don't know. If, um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were other things like forage your own, but the idea for me of, of after a five-hour drive from London, <laughs> you know, and it's always raining, if that's the case, to carry the shopping. Yeah. But he was absolutely adamant about the contemplation space. So we designed this space with a skylight you know, six or seven metres up. Um, we used a Danish brick, which you can get in black or white. I mean, the, the black is sort of greyish, beautiful colour, mm. matte. And the white is off-white, but matte. And so for the outside of the building, we used the black, but also for the contemplation space. The light was very much defined coming down. And we put two benches in there. So it's very, very nice spot just to be in. I mean, you don't have to formally contemplate or you know, meditate and it gives some interest to the house and we wanted the corridors the two circulation spaces to to be something themselves so they both got niches in where you, you can hang out you know they're slightly wider than normal and then the three bedrooms are much bigger than normal okay because Alain wanted them to have specific identities and if you were there with other people you could hang out on your own okay so one is the music emphasis on music so we put in um you know big valve stereo with, with big speakers and a playlist curated by my son Caius brilliant who also has a classical background as well in jazz so there's one reading suite Alan did the library there of books he chose the titles and then the last one was bathing. And so we did a, a more spacious bathroom with sky shower and, and a bath in the room that you could, 
watch the moors with, you know, when the sheep come right up. And then there's a nice communal area of, you know, the usual dining kitchen living. And, and I stocked it with all the glasses and furniture I chose and, and a lot of it's ours. And then Alan was really interesting because he wanted the dining chairs to be comfortable. So I, f- I thought the wishbone was fine. You know, that was, I thought that was extravagant, <laughs> you know, to have those. And he said, no, no, I want it to be more comfortable. So Hans Wiener's done this like armchair, but at dining room height. Okay. So it's like a big armchair, which yeah. surrounds you. Hmm. But the proportions are, are such that you can sit at a table. You okay. can sit upright at a table. He wanted people to be able to sit for, for eight, seven or eight hours. If somebody wants to spend, you know, the whole evening debating something. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is very nice. Yeah. Okay. So you wanted that comfort. Well, that was good. It's also good with when clients push you. Yeah. Because I've never dreamt of that. Yeah. Even if I'd been given carte blanche. I mean, I would have been. Mm. So was it quite different designing a house for essentially members of the public? Or did you always feel like you were designing for Alain de Botton as the client? Well, the honest answer, I always think I'm designing it for myself. Right. But with a few bright ideas thrown in. <laughs> there just happened to be more bright ideas than usual thrown in by Alan. Yeah. Okay, but, so, but the point is it needs to be something that you feel comfortable in and is representative of you. Yeah. I mean, if it isn't that it has to be, it just that it always is. Yeah. You know, all the things that we design... You know, if teacup or kettle or, I don't know, saucepans or tables and chairs and benches. You know, they're all things that I want and need and like. And mm. You know, I can't design to order in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I have done the other sofas here, but it's just not something I can sort of get to real grips with. Is it a newly built, completely new build, the building? In Wales? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I did... Um... A podcast with Jonathan Tucky, and he, his thing obviously is working with existing buildings. And he said he could never design a house from scratch because it's too overwhelming in a way because there's not enough to respond to. What do you think about that? How do you go about just starting something from scratch? Well, in a way, everything is from scratch a bit, even when it's something like this. But, I mean, I know what he means, but actually I find designing the, the new buildings easier than this. Do you? If you were to measure it in, in a sort of analytical way, the decisions I had to make here, which were also from scratch in a way, you know, if there were, I don't know, 300 or 3,000, there'd be a lot more decisions to be made um, out of the blue than, than designing a, a, a house. Yeah, a new house, I mean. Exactly, and I can see that. But there is that biggest decision of all, which is the form. So, let's say you've got this plot of land. What's step one? What do you do? You, you just have to make a start. Yeah, we don't sit around anymore, agonising in a you know, Winston Churchill thing where you know dot of ink appears on the paper. You know, <laughs> after half an hour, you know, yeah. you know, if, you know if, if you don't get on with it, like with the life house, you know, it was the second one. We. It, yeah, it's a completely different scheme. Okay, and sometimes it happens. A Swedish guy came to see us, and he was in computers, and but he was absolutely focused on us building a, him a house. Yeah, 
and he was you know of that obsessional kind which is quite handy so I visited the site came back had something in my mind almost immediately three-story pitch roof great views of the lake outside Stockholm uh, gorgeous site did it put the model on the table he walks in laughing and chattering and he saw this and his face fell and he's tall and he just sort of caved in and I was like this is what you should have I've come up with this you know it's inspired yeah <laughs> I didn't say any of those things but you know I've nothing much to say if, in these things because I do the work and then there it is and mm. it's difficult to sell it and <laughs> But I sort of said, you know, I think you'd love this. But anyway, he was quite adamant. And so we ended up doing a two-story flat-roofed house room. Okay. And it's been successful. And, and he's happy. He's over the moon. And and he's really treated it beautifully. And, he, and he's got all the right furniture to go in it. And it's immaculate. And he's very interested in documenting it all. But it's just funny that you you think you're there and you're not. Yeah. <laughs> what is your creative process then? How do you start? Are you someone that just sketches or are you looking at specific references or what is it? Well, never references. No. I mean, if I didn't start till late. So I'd seen Farnsworth and whatever. And also experiences, not just architecture, but just I'd lived yeah. you know, kind of thing. Uh, I can't sketch. I can do very naive sketches, which have a huge value in the office for their laughability <laughs> uh, so I try not to do too many of those but I have an ability I think I'm not sure how useful it is but I can go to a site I can listen to the client I can memorise everything that they've said I can memorize, and I can do the site the weather all the conditions within the next 24 hours if I can get that down it'll stay but otherwise that will disappear. Okay, so you have to immediately respond to those conditions. Well, I have to at least write everything down, even if I don't... But usually you have some vague idea. And then whoever's passing me in the corridor or the stairs gets saddled with uh, drawing it up or, or actually making sense of it. That's really interesting. So it's a set of words and sentences that you've got rather than... Well, I do, some, I do do some sketches, you know, but as you've heard, I mean, both times I got it wrong first yeah. time yeah. and we got it right second time. Mm. So whoever's doing it makes a model for me and, or a sketch or I don't know, or I do. The biggest drawback for me is that we have to show these things too soon. A client comes in and they say, we've been following you for ages and ages. We've got a piece of land in, by the lake, by the sea, whatever, in London, or we'd love you to do a house. And you say, that, well, that'd be great. And either they tell you nothing or they, they give you too prescriptive a list. And they said, well, when can we see it? Yeah. And you say, well, I don't know. And they infer that's not good enough. So then you're pushed into making a time thing. Okay. So I don't know. Two months is probably the most you can get away with. Yeah. So in two months, you have to come up with the idea that will probably stick forever. Yeah. Which is far too short. What would you like to do then? Well, I wouldn't like a time limit. Yeah. But that's obviously impractical. I mean, if it takes two months to, 
you've got to have a concept and then six months to put it on properly on paper. But you can't change it between the two months and the six months mm. because the client goes, well, like, you showed me something and I loved it. Mm. And now you're saying you don't love it. Right. It's quite hard. You know, and you could say, well, we have to be more responsible because those buildings don't go away. They're there for a long time and they have an impact and so on. Well, you don't build anything until you feel comfortable. But I think longer would be better. Mm. Less buildings and longer. But life doesn't quite work. Yeah. So I think the final question, John, is a question that I always ask everyone, really. But obviously the modern house is about this idea of home and the importance of home and what it means to people. So I suppose sat here in your home, what is it to you? What does it do? I know you have a home in London as well, but why is it important? Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it clearly is sort of vital or, or incredibly important. And there is a difference between a home and a house. And I think you make you make a house a home. But I would always refer to them as home because I always feel that, you know, one's already done that. You know, you've automatically transferred to home rather than a house. You know, if you gave me the choice between, you know, good food or a good house, I think I'd go for the good food. <laughs> and if you want some sort of security for your children, but that's looking back as a family man. I mean, for my son... To say at my 70th birthday a couple of years ago, he made a speech and the gist was that I'd put family before the career, before work. And I think a home is a place for family. So some kind of shelter where you're safe, I think, or comfortable or, you know, all you can rely on is, is important. Yeah. It's important to me to make my surroundings feel good. I've always had a go at school. I... I hung this hammock in my room, but the only secure fixing I could get for the hammock was on the back of the door. So when the housemaster opened the door, the hammock dropped. <laughs> but luckily, he he took that as being, you know, interestingly eccentric rather than breaking the rules. And it's always been to transform places I was in that, you know, at any cost to make them special. Brilliant. Well, John, thanks so, so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for listening. It's a it's um, slight imbalance. I get to do all the talking and you get the question. I know, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't, it just goes against my mother's upbringing. <laughs> no, it's been brilliant. Thanks, John. Thanks for everything today. Honestly, it's been really, really brilliant. Fascinating. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast make sure you catch the second part of our double header with John Pawson, in which he gives me an amazingly comprehensive and intimate tour of his beautiful Cotswolds farmhouse. We've got lots more brilliant guests coming up, so if you haven't already done so, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could rate and review the show because it really helps others to discover us too. This episode was produced by Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.